if you're in a general office building and the lights don't come on one day, well, you can ask your employees to work from home in 2021. And, and that's not the end of the world. You can still keep things going. And in the practice of medicine, you're done for the day. And you're having to try to work around rescheduling all of those patients. And so it's a logistic nightmare. It's a revenue concern. And then beyond that, just in terms of the quality of the facility itself, it's your brand. I mean, your, your patients are walking into your facility and they are already making judgments about their care based upon the cleanliness, the capital conditions, access, and things along that vein. This is the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast, the podcast that brings together leaders in healthcare and investment real estate to consider the possibilities in future at the intersection of practicing medicine and healthcare real estate investment returns. Welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. I am your host, Trisha Talbot. As a healthcare real estate advisor to providers and investors, the best solutions occur when the two collaborate together as partners in delivering better patient care. Providers can deliver care to their patients when and where they need it, and investors realize the returns to build and manage facilities. We explore changes in medicine and wellness, the future of healthcare, and using real estate as a strategic and financial tool. Welcome to this week's episode of the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast, where I interview Josh Richman, founding principal and president of Evergreen Medical Properties, where we discuss how investing in healthcare properties is much more than just the numbers. The long-term investment success of healthcare real estate property involves the long-term success of the healthcare companies and clinicians that occupy the property and meeting their needs to be able to successfully treat their patients. So welcome, Josh. So Josh, welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance Podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So tell me the background story behind Evergreen Medical Properties. All right. Yeah. So Evergreen Medical was born out of conversations with kind of an adult mentor of mine throughout my life, both personally as well as professionally, a, a fellow named Bill Fryer. So I'm originally from Atlanta, Georgia. Bill is also Bill had a successful career in law, and then left the 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 legal profession in order to open up an investment management company. And he had always been interested in the medical sector. I think we were we would chat on and off about it. Probably I don't know. I'd say three or four times a year whenever he ran across something he was interested in, but but never really did much there. And one day we were having just one of those chats and, and uh, that conversation started to coalesce into to creating a company together. And, and really what, what caused it to do so was a, kind of some shared values around what we thought real estate investment companies should have in terms of the ethics and the value systems. And, and what are some of those shared ethics and values that you guys align yeah, on? Yeah, so primarily around alignment, but then also transparency. So from an alignment perspective, Bill came into the, the investment management space trying to find ways for the actual investor who's putting the bulk of institutional capital into investment, finding ways for them to be better aligned with the investor, somebody like myself. And believe it or not, there's, there's a lot of misalignment between those parties in, in the industry. And what I was seeking as I started thinking about creating a company was the same, but it, but it had one extra step to it. And in most asset classes, the tenant is, despite housing their business there or 
or maybe housing themselves there, they're actually not as big of a stakeholder in the real estate itself. And in medical, it's a little different. You're, you're, you're actually providing care. If you're in a general office building and the lights don't come on one day, well, you can ask your employees to work from home in 2021. And, and that's not the end of the world. You can still keep things going. And the practice of medicine, you're done for the day. And you're having to try to work around rescheduling all of those patients. And so it's a logistic nightmare. It's a revenue concern. And then beyond that, just in terms of the quality of the facility itself, it's your brand. I mean, your, your patients are walking into your facility and they are already making judgments about their care based upon the cleanliness, the capital conditions, access, and things along that vein. And so here in our sector, more than I would say any other sector that may be senior living, the occupants, the actual tenant is a major stakeholder. And so as much as possible at Evergreen, we're really looking to align those three groups in the, in the medical office building. We're looking to align the tenant with the investor and with the operator of the investment company. Obviously, what you just said comes with a lot of experience behind it. So how did you start your career thinking that you were going to become involved in healthcare real estate? How, how did that how did that happen? I don't think anybody, particularly in, in, in 2000, was expecting that they would go into healthcare real estate. I think most people fall into it and then realize how much they like it. I would imagine some of that's similar with you. Absolutely. <laughs> But yeah, no. So I graduated with a mobile arts degree, which basically meant that I learned a little bit about how to think, but but not how to do anything too super useful to an employer. And so and so that was that was all fine until I decided I really needed to to, to get a career going. But yeah, my, it was actually a family business. My father was a medical office developer in Atlanta. He got into the business in the late 70s through some relationships he had with my grandfather, who's a general surgeon in Atlanta. And he started, you know, kind of pioneering the physician investment model back then and, and then scaled that over time. And when I graduated from college, he was taking his company through a, kind of a new iteration of its life and was looking for, I think, some really cheap labor. That, that, that might also be vested. And so he, he brought me in and it ended up being kind of a blessing because there, there aren't that many people in the world that can fall into something that they like that much right out of college. You know, most people have to strive to bounce around a little bit. Yeah. And, and so I feel pretty lucky to have fallen into it. So yeah, got, I've never done anything but outpatient medical, focused on it there, kind of cutting my teeth on the leasing and development side. And then Ended up transitioning over to working for two of the largest healthcare REITs in the market. Oh, I love that story. So Evergreen Medical Properties, you have offices in Denver and Atlanta. And then do you uh -huh. have any specific area you concentrate or you just follow the opportunities? Yeah, so we're a pretty targeted investor. You know, there's a lot of people out there just buying on velocity. We tend to really fall in love with a, an asset or more importantly, frankly, the, the providers and the asset is ultimately, I think they're the biggest part of the value. But either way, we, we end up having a lot of conviction about a particular investment and, and, and then going really hard at that from an investment perspective. And, and that requires that we do it nationally. You know, my experience is investing across the lower 48 
it's important in our sector, just in terms of your, your personal life, to be able to have a, a relatively central location or, or, and or locations that have airport hubs that can get you into some of the smaller markets. So Denver to Phoenix is pretty easy. But when you start getting into some of the, the smaller markets around the region, it gets a little harder. And, and having those direct flights makes a, a world of difference. So Atlanta has that being the, the busiest airport in the country. And it's a pretty easy compliment to Denver, where I can get to Seattle as quick as I can get to Atlanta. I think in terms of concentration, you know, we have thus far been concentrating actually in, in Phoenix and Florida, South Carolina, starting to have a lot of concentration actually up in the Northeast and starting to, to work a lot, a lot more in the Northwest. But generally speaking, there's no particular region where we are we're running really hard. Well, I like what you said about really focus on the tenants. You know, you really need to like the tenants. And do you think that so there's two parts to this. One, do you think that you would have been able to focus on that without having some leasing experience? And then secondly, without having so real estate is a numbers. I mean, the numbers have to make sense and you have to have skill and training there. But sometimes it takes not the number, you know, sometimes problem solving skills. So do you think that you've been able to draw on your experience with leasing that you started with and then also not necessarily coming up as, you know, a CPA or a financial analysis specifically? I mean, that happened after, but not CPA, sorry, but financial analysis. But I mean, do you think your liberal arts has helped you look at certain buildings a little differently than if you were just focused on the numbers? Yeah, I think the liberal arts background just kind of at a macro level, you know, it's pretty in, interdisciplinary, right? So that approach to education kind of draws you to look at things a- across multiple functions. And I think that that's important in life and, and also in, a, in, in business generally. And I think it's really important in investing. I mean, we, like I was saying earlier, I mean, we're, we're not solely looking at rent rolls and markets and gen demographics. We're, we're looking at who a provider is in a market and how they provide care in a market. And, and frankly, we, we invest along thinking about that attribute of, of a medical office building and the participants in it as much as we do what the rent roll looks like and what the real estate itself looks like. And then I'm a little ADD, which also causes, causes you to bounce around the way you think about things. So that, that can be a, both a plus and a minus in terms of, 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 of me. But beyond, beyond <laughs> that, that issue, you know what really helped with the, the leasing was having a little more empathy for the operational side of the business and then even more so for what the tenants are looking for. I mean, it's the leasing group along with the property managers too, but it's the leasing group that are really trying to get at the goals of what the providers need and want in a facility. And it's in that that has really helped me in terms of thinking through, does this facility work for tenants that are already there? And then also when we're buying a facility, particularly multi-tenant buildings, what can we do and what do we need to be thinking about from a go-forward perspective? To ensure that it's still relevant to them. In terms of the creativity piece, I think the biggest thing that's helped me there was actually my development background. I mean, development is all about coordination <laughs> and problem solving. I mean, that is those are two of the biggest things. And 
you know, strong developers, it's almost like being the conductor of an orchestra. They can, they can make music or they can make noise. And so you have to be able to choreograph that process and, and as, as harmonious of a fashion as possible, managing all of the stakeholders and problem solving the whole way. And, <laughs> and so I think, I think that that is one of the things that's, that's helped me on the investment side where there's, there's generally less variables more than anything else. So when you look at a, a property, kind of what core tenant do you look for? I mean, obviously, you know, surgery centers are strong, but you know, do you look at like having one practice that is serving the community in a strong way, regardless of a specialty, or do you look for a specific specialty? Yeah, I mean, I think that all specialties are are are, are necessary to the holistic provision of care in our country. And so, when we look at a property, we don't think one specialty is necessarily that much better than another. There are definitely specialties that have higher or lower margins. And, and that's something that we take into account, but we're primarily looking for the right kind of ecosystem. And so that could be a single specialty effectively where you've got an ecosystem that's built around orthopedics that might have a surgery center, it might have imaging, and then it might be anchored by an, an orthopedic group, or it could be a multi-tenant building where you've got an, an ecosystem that's not just inside the building itself, but maybe even operating outside of it in the submarket. And so really what we're looking for when we look at these assets is to try to understand as much as possible how the various providers in the building are, are actually operating both within the asset as well as within the market, and then drill up from there in terms of how that might impact value. So if if you're looking at a property and you know it's physician currently physician-owned, or physicians develop a property and then they're wanting to sell it, can you offer a physician ownership in the property? Absolutely. That was one of the key things that, that we wanted to make sure that we were doing and, and offering to folks. Again, it kind of goes back to that value of alignment. So if we are, are bringing the physicians into an investment with us, both parties are much better aligned with each other. And I think that it, it, it creates a, an easier process toward closing. And then I also think it, it creates a lot better relationship thereafter. So we absolutely offer that type of a structure. And, and we also try to solve problems where we can. I mean, a very common issue is the fact that some of the physicians may not have ownership in the real estate. Some of the physicians might. And, and we try to help create alignment even within the practice in terms of creating some, some optionality for for the practice and the physicians and it, depending upon what their goals are. Yeah. And could you have some that will want to invest and some that don't? Exactly. And, and then, you know, I think that solves a lot of problems because there's a lot of practices that I'm sure you know very well and have seen where there's different, they're in different parts of their career and all of a sudden the, mm -hmm. the, the practice implodes because they don't have an exit strategy. Exactly. And that's a national theme. I mean, that's not something that's particular to any region by, by any structure of the imagination. Right. So I say this kind of tongue in cheek, but so do you have an interesting transaction story that you can share with the audience? You know, one that's memorable, interesting. And I say, you know, turned out differently than expected because I think they all do, but <laughs> they sure do. Yeah. But anyone in particular that comes to mind that you would want to share? 
Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that just like you were, you, you ended up saying that, that I, I don't know that I've had one transaction turn out exactly like I thought I was going to. I think that my favorite transactions end up being those that involve the physicians in the real estate. One of the most interesting ones that, that comes to mind is one that I did in California. And it was interesting because there was a, a group of physicians that, that, that wanted to sell the real estate. The health system that was nearby had no space in the building. They weren't affiliated with the building in any way, shape, or form. They were affiliated with the physicians, but only really by virtue of the fact physicians were on staff. There was no more formal relationship than that, than the physicians having staff privileges, that is. And this transaction, what we, we thought was going to be the, the natural course of it was, was that the, the physicians were going to end up renewing their leases and extending the term and, and, and that it would be kind of a more customary sale lease back. And, and what ultimately ended up happening is that we, we ended up having a, a three-party negotiation where I was working, ended up working with the health system to come in and, and actually take the leases in the building. And they ended up mass releasing the building. And then the physicians ended up moving to better real estate for them over the course of time. And so wow. those physicians are actually still moving out. And, and what really ended up happening is that the location, while it's a great location in the submarket, the physician groups themselves were, were starting to grow out of it. And as we started to pick up on that, theme that the, the the growth trajectory of these groups in the building was really beyond the building could could offer them but they still needed it to 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 create a liquidity event for themselves we realized that we had a bigger problem to solve and so did the hospital in terms of right. a problem they needed to solve and it worked out beautifully because the hospital did not want all of the square footage at this moment in time but they did want to grow into it over time and they absolutely wanted to control it. And so it ended up being a nice, a nice situation where you're able to kind of create a win-win-win. Wow. That did turn out differently. <laughs> it turned out very different. <laughs> but it worked out. <laughs> so has the pandemic affected your approach to pursuing opportunities? Like, do you look at the tenants' financials a little bit stronger? Do you look for a, like higher credit tenants more than you would? have done pre-pandemic? I think some people, yes, us, no. I came out of a, an organization that had a heavy emphasis on credit. And, and that was drilled into me in a pretty deep way from the, the board on down. And so I, I, I don't really think that it changed the way we approached looking at credit, but I do think it's changing the way the market is looking at credit. In terms of what COVID did, it, it also didn't really change the way we pursued assets. I mean, we, we had a lot more phone calls in, in 2020 than we did in-person visits, which I would always prefer the latter. But really what it's done is it's really made us rethink things operationally. And so I think, you know, an example is say masking and, and, and rules around the building as it pertains to a pandemic. Well, you know, at the very beginning of the pandemic, we we came down kind of with this ubiquitous approach to a building in, in in South Carolina as we would have a building in New Jersey. Well, <laughs> very quickly it dawned on us that we couldn't think about things that way. And we really needed to think about what was happening in New Jersey versus South Carolina, which was very, very different. 
depending upon the time. And we needed to be coordinating a little bit more with our tenants on what they needed us to be doing from a rules perspective in the building. And so if anything, it's it's caused us with that and then other things, even how we're thinking about capital that we spend on the building to spend more time engaging with the physicians on how we're managing the facility. So when you're looking at acquisitions, what is your, what's kind of your, you know, you have to have a little bit of criteria with regard to size and value and stuff. I mean, where do you, where's your sweet spot? Yeah, we're generally looking for opportunities that are north of $8 million in dollar value. We don't really have a cap. You know, we're, we're, we're looking at a transaction right now that's well into the, the hundreds of millions. And so we can kind of run the gamut there. In terms of regional locations, I think I mentioned earlier, we're really investing across the lower 48. In terms of other criteria, we like value-add assets. So, I mean, a building that's got shorter lease terms, um, you know, we, we have no problem looking at that type of investment. And then we also have assets that are mass-released for a very long period of time and, and on campus and, and some of those more core things. I think that what we really are looking for when we're, we're looking at these systems or at these investment opportunities is the practice or the practices and understanding how, how they're delivering care. So okay. kind of back to that theme. And then what is your opinion, you know, based on that, the outlook a year out versus further mm-hmm. long, more long-term, you know, what is your opinion on the, on healthcare real estate in those terms? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that it, it's been an interesting past, say 20 years, <laughs> you know, the great recession came, came upon us. But quite right before that, medical office or outpatient medical facilities really weren't even considered an asset class. I would say even healthcare wasn't even considered a real estate asset class. And it was really that recession that caused the the broader market to start really paying attention to healthcare real estate. And so it brought a lot of a lot of newcomers to the sector, which had pluses and minuses. I mean, I think that it made it easier for people to get loans on, on the real estate by way of example. But I also think that it brought people who were real estate investors that liked what was happening from a macro perspective, but didn't really understand the, the, the actual stakeholder in the real estate, the, the providers. And so that's been one of the downsides. And, and so when the pandemic hit, this happened again and the focus intensified. So I, I think that even more capital started looking at the space and they're even more interested in the space because they, they saw how resilient the space was during the pandemic. I think that that's going to have some of the same effects where it's going to bring even more newcomers and it's going to also bring even more value to people who are selling their real estate assets. So I think it's generally positive what's, what's happened and I think that it's going to continue to be positive. And in terms of valuation, I think that with that comes the flip side, which is anybody who's selling a real estate asset and going to still occupy it should should probably be be thinking through real carefully who who their their real estate partner is going to be. Absolutely, that is the biggest biggest thing, especially for like you said. I mean, they have to operate a healthcare practice, and who owns it is a huge deal. So now, Josh, we're gonna we're gonna move into getting to know you. A little bit. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> Is everyone ready for that? Yeah, yeah. So what was your first job? Which you might have already My first answered. job. 
Yeah. So my, well, my first job was, I hope nobody from a regulatory agency was, was listening at, I, I think I was about 10 or 11, but, but I started garaging and vacuuming cars at my stepfather's garage. And then uh, it ended up moving into patching and plugging tires and doing oil, oil changes and, and, and so forth. He put me to work at a, at a young age, but that was, that was actually a good thing. And it taught me a lot about, about money. And then it also taught me a little bit about customer service at a, at a young age, which, which I think still carry, is something I carry with me today. I love that. That's great. What would you be doing for a living if you were not working in the healthcare real estate industry? Oh, wow. So I will say that I, I really enjoyed the geology and forestry classes I had in college. In fact, I spent the lion's share of my time. And so it would probably be something within the natural resources industry. You know, whether it was academia or whether it was in something in the forest service or or working for 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 somebody who was maybe trying to do something more with natural resources in our economy, I don't know, but but I think that I probably would have gone down that path and loved the classes. I loved learning about ecosystems and how they work together. And frankly, that's actually where the the name Evergreen came from, which was really the time I've spent learning about how forests operate back to the the, the whole point of alignment. Evergreen, the name really stemmed out of forest, the symbiotic relationships of all the components of a forest and how those function and, and are wanting to try to replicate some of those themes within the business world. Oh, I like that. Who are you reading or listening to right now for news, information, or inspiration? You know, in this world, I find <laughs> <laughs> you get, I have found that the multidisciplinary approach is, is, is best. I get it from various sources whether it's podcasts, but then also types of sources in terms of how they might be geared politically. So, I mean, I read a lot of the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, but then I'll also listen to NPR and Fox News in order to kind of triangulate some of my own opinions. There's one podcast that I've been enjoying, and it kind of came from a surprising, surprising group. There's a, there's a real estate services firm called Walker Dunlap, and they do a a lot in the lending industry. And it's really not them so much as it is their CEO. There's, his name is Willie Walker. And he gets very interesting people on his podcast. And he does a really nice job of pulling in kind of interesting thoughts and perspectives out of them. I mean, so you, you'll, you'll get somebody who may run a very large investment bank. Then you might get somebody who was a colonel in the army. And, and then everything in between. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been interesting. I've enjoyed it. Oh, that's nice. What is one thing you do every day for healthy self-care? Meditate, <laughs> believe it or not. Yeah. And I, I don't meditate on anything other than just being quiet. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so I, I, I will take at least eight minutes, seems to be the minimum, but eight, eight, eight to 15 minutes every day and just sit. And, and that has been extremely beneficial for me. Well, and it's funny because I was listening to something this morning as part of my like morning routine. And it was saying how people try, like there's people that want to like read books on meditation and there's people that want to like try to analyze meditation, but meditation is something you just have to do and that it doesn't always go as planned. And it's really frustrating for people that that have results-oriented folks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That they're like, I, I, I intended for it to be like this, like, so, you know, and, and it didn't like yesterday I was, tr I was doing my 
routine. And I, I was like, I, my mind couldn't race. So I started getting on my phone and sending myself notes. And I was like, I think this is against the point of this whole thing. <laughs> well, it's a hard thing to fight, right? Right. Exactly. I'm like, but it's um, yeah, coming to no, mind totally. and I have, I have to get all of this out. I have to do this. And then like today I was more calm. And then, you know, it's like, you know, but you just have to sort of be like, okay, today it's not going to go as planned. And then you just do it again tomorrow. <laughs> I totally hear you. So anyway, so the point was that meditation is something you just have to do and you can't control it, which I thought that was interesting. (laughs) And I think that's one of the beautiful parts of it is that you you realize you can't control it. So you you let go of that. (laughs) So in your opinion, are leaders born or are they trained? Hmm. It's interesting. So I, I would say, you know, leaders kind of rise out of various situations. I don't know that it's that binary. I think some are, some people are definitely born with what we'd consider a real desirable leadership skills. You know, and I think others have probably learned some through watching, observation, being involved in this, that, or the other. But I think a lot of a lot of great leaders really just rise up out of need, and and that there's either a crisis or a situation where they've got to step up to the plate, and and maybe it is something they're born with. They're kind of thinking back to that. It sparks something, and they they rise up out of that situation. So I think that's where a lot of a lot of strong leaders come from. Yeah, no, I like that answer. Well, Josh, this has been a wonderful interview. Thank you for your time. Absolutely, likewise. Thank you for for thinking about us. I'm grateful for you tuning in to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast with others. As a disclaimer, this podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and not intended for specific real estate investment advice.